Okay, let's begin. Welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. I believe we're up to about session nine. Uh, before we get started, any questions left over from last week or any other questions uh, that you want to make sure we cover off tonight? Okay, I'll take, I'll take silence as a no. Um, but if you do have questions, as always, uh, just click on the microphone icon if you'd like to share those or go ahead and type them in uh, in the dialog box. As we've done in previous sessions, I'd like to review what we covered uh, in our last session. We talked uh, about uh, roughly four different topics, one of which was prayer. And we talked about what prayer is and what it's not and concluded that it is a, essentially a review of correct ideas about the Creator. It's the going over of ideas about God uh, that we know to be true. That helps those ideas to get inculcated into our minds and helps us to see the truth then more clearly. That can change us so then the Creator can relate to us differently. We discussed that God relates to different people uh, based on the level that they're on. And so by going over correct ideas, that changes us, raises us to a higher level, and then God can relate to us differently. We also discussed that uh, Shimona Esrei uh, is the primary prayer that we should uh, focus on. That's found in the, uh, the Jewish prayer book. And we want to make sure if we do pray that, that we appropriately change any pronouns or any other words to make sure that as we say it, we are uh, making true statements. We also did discuss that Noahides, unlike the Jewish people, are not obligated to pray uh, necessarily on a regular basis, but are only obligated, as I understand it, to pray in time of danger. It's certainly uh, useful to pray on a regular basis and on a daily basis, and I would encourage that, but from a halakhic uh, obligatory standpoint, we are only uh, obligated in time of danger. We then talked about holidays, uh, and we pointed out that uh, Noahides can celebrate certain Jewish holidays, uh, but that we are prohibited from creating any new religious holidays, even if they were centered around the Torah. Uh, we also talked about how the Sabbath was given to the Jewish people, not to the world or to uh, the Noahides, and so we cannot celebrate the Sabbath in exactly the same manner as a Jew. But we could do virtually everything, and as long as we did one thing during the day that halakhically constituted work, like striking a match, then we would be just fine. Uh, and we discussed that probably the best thing for us to do is on both Shabbos and the holidays, uh, is to focus on the purpose of the day and study the underlying ideas. On the holidays, certainly there are lots of ideas with regard to each individual holiday that we can look at. With regard to Shabbos, uh, we can simply make that a day focused on learning uh, and be involved in Torah study and, uh, and that kind of thing throughout the day. We also discussed the question which comes up uh, from time to time about, well, should Noahides take on additional commandments over and above the seven Noahide laws? 
We are allowed to do that with many of the commandments, but we need to very, very carefully think through what is motivating us to do that. Uh, and we should only take on a commandment if we clearly see the benefit to us of doing that. Uh, so, for example, if I'm tempted to, uh, say, uh, start uh, eating kosher because I think, think that somehow that makes me more religious or more pious or, you know, God's going to smile at me more, or, you know, uh, not that God's physical in any way, but somehow we have this idea in our mind that it makes us, you know, uh, uh, in, in a better spot from that standpoint, then we have to be very careful because that can be our religious emotion operating uh, to try to to get us to do things that the emotion thinks make us more religious. What we need to do is step back and say, do I practically see the benefit to myself of taking on this commandment? And if I do, then, then it would be a positive thing for me to do. Uh, but there could be a tendency to rush headlong into this, say, well, i got to start doing all this stuff, uh, because somehow we think that's what the thing to do is. Remember, if we go back to our study of nine tools of Torah, it's better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. So we want to take on a commandment because we clearly have explored that benefit, see the benefit, and then do it for that reason. And then finally, we looked at the question of honoring parents. Uh, and we pointed out that, well, this is halakhically not a commandment upon the Noahides. It is a very positive thing to do and that we honor parents not because of how they treated us, but because we would not exist except for them. They are, uh, were partners in our creation. So we, uh, we provide honor to them uh, because of that, whether they treated us well growing up or whether they did not. Any questions about anything there that we covered last week or any of these subjects? Okay. Let's move on to apply. Oh, and we also, oh, before I get ahead of myself here, we also talked about what to, what to study. Uh, and we suggested that we start with uh, the written Torah and commentaries like Rashi, uh, a famous book called Duties of the Heart, uh, and then the study of Proverbs. And we pointed out that there are some good audio classes and recordings available at the two websites that are listed on your screen. Uh, yabt.org and masoda.org. And Edna, thanks for the question. You said, could, we, could I explain a little bit of what we aren't supposed to do on Shabbos? It's not really a case of what of a particular activity that you're not supposed to do. It's that you are not supposed to keep the, uh, the Sabbath in exactly the same way that a Jewish person does. So, for example, starting from uh, sundown on Friday night till sundown on um, Saturday night, uh, a Jewish person is not allowed to do any work. Now, this is not work like we think of work. This is work, the term work is very, very carefully defined in the Jewish law. Uh, so, for example, strike a striking a match uh, is not considered, or is considered to be work. Um, Carrying things a certain distance, uh, and I, I don't—I know just enough to be dangerous on this, but uh, carrying things a certain distance is considered to be uh, work. Um, if you were to spend a uh, a Shabbos in a uh, an observant Jewish home, 
you would find that they have their food prepared in advance. You won't find them turning the stove on and off or turning the lights on and off or doing certain things that halakhically are considered to be work. So they're supposed to abstain from work. Um, now, then the question comes, well, gee, if I'm a Noahide, should I abstain from work too? And the answer is no, we're not allowed to. So we're, we're essentially not allowed to uh, abide by the Sabbath in exactly the same way as the Jewish people. Now, having said that, what I could do is I could do everything uh, that the Jewish people do on Sabbath, and I could abstain from everything that the Jewish people do on Sabbath, as long as I did one thing that day that halakhically, legally, constitutes work. In which case, I would have essentially sort of, if I were a Jewish person, I would have broken the Sabbath. And therefore, within the Noahide context, I would not have kept the Sabbath in the same manner as a Jewish person. So, um, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the idea there. Now, and they, you mentioned uh, abstaining from work uh, on Sabbath. It depends on what you mean by abstaining from work. Uh, if, uh, if you're just saying, well, I don't like go to work on that day. Uh, let's say I run a dry cleaning business and I just don't do my dry cleaning business on that day. That is not necessarily what uh, the halacha is, cons you know, is considering work. Uh, work could be, uh, literally, is turning on a light switch. If you've turned on a light switch on Chavez, then you have legally done work, and therefore you have not abstained from work, and therefore you're good as far as a Noahide is concerned. So it's kind of a reverse, uh, a reverse reasoning thing. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with, you know, a Noahide who uh, works at their job five or six days a week saying, you know what, I'm not going to go into the office on, on uh, Saturday. Uh, as long as I do something over the course of that day that uh, constitutes uh, work. And that's a pretty broad definition. And my guess is if you are not familiar with the Jewish law with regard to work, you probably have done something that constitutes that. Turning on a light, turning on the oven, uh, turning on the stove, uh, or anything along that line. Uh, so... Yep, and you're right. If you turn lights on, then you're safe. Uh, it's not a problem. So, not to worry. Okay, any other questions about that? Okay. What I'd like to do is undertake a, a brief study of a portion of the Torah that gives us a real good sense of what Torah study is about, and a little bit about the Torah method of study. Um, and I'd like to do that by going through uh, four sections of the story about Joseph and his brothers that's given in uh, Genesis. Hopefully you had a chance to review that story over the last week. Um, I'm going to read uh, a section of it, and what I would like you to do as I read it is Think about, go back, if you go back to our class on nine tools of Torah, think about every single question that would 
come up in your mind about this story? Uh, maybe things that don't make sense, things that you don't understand, things that you wonder why did people do a certain uh, thing in the story uh, or whatever. So we want to be uh, sort of have an inquiring, investigative mind about what is happening with this story. Uh, and what I'd like to do is start with the section from Genesis 42.7 to 42.36. And I'm going to read that from the Living Torah, uh, put out by um, Mazname Publishing in, uh, in New York. And it reads uh, like this. You, you, hopefully, let me ask you this before we go on. Are you all familiar with the general gist of the study, or the, of the story, rather, of Joseph and his brothers? Did you get a chance to read it, or are you familiar with the background? Okay, good. Thank you. So we're up to the point in the story where the brothers go to get food in Egypt. And Joseph has already been made uh, the number two guy in Egypt, right under Pharaoh, to lead the, uh, uh, the storage of food. And it says, Joseph recognized his brothers as soon as he saw them, but he behaved like a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, to buy food, they replied. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. He remembered what he had dreamed about them. You are spies, he said to them. You've come to see where the land is exposed to attack. No, my lord, they replied. We are your servants, who have come only to buy food. We are all the sons of the same man. We are honorable men. We would never think of being spies. No, retorted Joseph. You have come to see where the land is exposed. We are twelve brothers, they pleaded. We are the sons of one man who is in Canaan. Right now the youngest brother is with our father, and one brother is gone. I still say that you are spies, replied Joseph. There is only one way that you can convince me. By Pharaoh's life, all of you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go back and bring your brother. The rest will remain here under arrest. This will test your claim and determine if you are telling the truth. If not, by Pharaoh's life, you will be considered spies. Joseph had them placed under arrest for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, If you do as I say, you will live. I fear the God. We will see if you are really being candid. One of you will be held hostage in the same building where you were kept under arrest. The rest can go and bring supplies to your hungry families. Bring your youngest brother here and your claim will be substantiated. Then you will not die. They agreed to this, but they said to one another, We deserve to be punished because of what we did to our brother. We saw him suffering when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That's why this great misfortune has come upon us now. Reuben interrupted them. Didn't I tell you not to commit a crime against the boy, he said? You wouldn't listen. Now a divine accounting is being demanded for his blood. Meanwhile, they did not realize that Joseph was listening, since they had spoken to him through a translator. Joseph left them and wept. When he returned, he spoke to them sternly again. He had Simeon taken from them and placed in chains before their eyes. Joseph gave orders that when their bags were filled with grain, each one's money should also be placed in his sack. They were also to be given provisions for the journey. This was done. The brothers then loaded the food they bought on their donkeys, and they departed. 
When they came to the place where they spent the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his donkey. He saw his money right there at the top of his pack. My money has been returned, he exclaimed to his brothers. It's in my pack. Their hearts sank. What is this that God has done to us, they asked each other with trembling voices. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him about all that had happened to them. The man who was the Lord of the land spoke to us harshly, they said, and he charged us with spying on the land. We said to him, we are honorable men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, all of the same father. One of us has been lost, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. The man who was the Lord of the land said to us, I have a way of knowing if you are honorable. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take what you need for your hungry families and go. Bring your youngest brother back to me, and then I will know that you are honorable men and not spies. I will give your brother back to you, and you will be able to do business in our land. They began emptying their sacks, and each one's money was found to be in his sack. The brothers and their father saw the money bags, and they were afraid. Their father Jacob said to them, You're making me lose my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is happening to me. So let's stop there. Now let's pause and ask, what questions pop up in this story? What do you think? Are there any questions that come to mind as you read this? Okay, and good. Got three. You can either take the mic or type them in. Okay, what does it mean to for the land to be exposed as a spy? Okay, we can talk about that. Land to rest for three days. Okay. Why did Joseph go through all the drama to get his father there? Very, very good question. Very good question. Oh, and a fourth one. Got it. Okay. Why didn't they recognize it? Okay. Let me cover off, and if you come up with more as we go along, uh, let's, let's talk about them. Let me cover off number one and number four first. Uh, my understanding of what it means to, uh, when he said, um, you've come to see where the land is exposed, uh, if you can imagine <clears throat> in, a, in a famine type situation where Egypt is the only place that has food, they're very concerned about national security. Um, you know, what if some group comes along and wants to try to figure out where there's a weakness in uh, the land of Egypt and take over the land because they've got all the food. Uh, so I think what Joseph is pointing out as far as my understanding is that you've come to see where the land is exposed, meaning where our weaknesses are. You know, weaknesses in our, in our uh, uh, I guess you'd say fences, except they didn't literally have fences around it, but uh, to find out 
where uh, Egypt's Achilles heels might be. And if we were, if a, a, an outside group were to attack it, where the weak parts would be, where the, where the country would be exposed to a, a potential attack. So that's my, my understanding there. The, the, your fourth question of why didn't they recognize him, um, we're talking about a long time between the time they last saw him, uh, and I want to say, I don't recall the exact age, uh, but I want to say that when they last left him, he was like 12, 13, 14, a pretty young man. And it was, it's been at least, I think, 14 years um, since they've seen him, 12 to 14. So uh, a guy changes a lot in that time, plus if he by that time had grown a beard uh, and was dressed completely differently, uh, perhaps, uh, and out of context, because they certainly weren't expecting to find, uh, you know, apparently him in a, in a very um, uh, kind of dictatorial and rulership role, then uh, it, was, uh, it would be, I think, easy for them to, um, you know, not recognize him. And Pamela, thank you. Joseph was uh, uh, 17. Uh, they were older, but he still recognized them. Yes, and my understanding of that is that he would have recognized them, first of all, because there's a bunch of them, but also because um, we change a lot in our sort of uh, teen years, you know, uh, from, I don't know, maybe uh, 12, 15 up until our mid-20s. Uh, but after that, then our appearance uh, stays reasonably, I think, consistent uh, in terms of, you know, body development and facial development and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's, that's my best understanding of how, um, how he would, would recognize them, but they would not recognize him. Now, you had two other questions, <clears throat> one of which was, uh, why did Joseph go through all the drama? Uh, to get his father there, and why did he keep him under arrest uh, for um, three days? So let me um, let me also uh, and Pamela, thank you. You mentioned he'd been in Egypt around 22 years when uh, when Jacob arrived, which is a, a relatively uh, long time. Let me also then go through a kind of a laundry list of some questions, and I, I want to preface all this by telling you that the analysis uh, and virtually all the questions and so forth that I'm about to share with you uh, was given over to, uh, on a tape series by Rabbi Reuven Mann, who uh, teaches at um, uh, Yeshiva B'nai Torah. He's also a rabbi of a congregation in Plainview, New York. He also teaches at Masorit, which is a, a women's Torah school uh, in Far Rockaway. Uh, very, very uh, great scholar. And uh, he, he uh, has a series of tapes on YBT.org that are available, recordings about the story of Joseph and his brothers called Family in Crisis. Uh, and the information I'm about to share with you comes uh, primarily from him and also uh, some that I received from Rabbi Israel Chait. So uh, I cannot tell you this is original research on my part, but uh, is from them, and uh, hopefully I'm getting it all over to you correctly, uh, some just very insightful ideas. 
let me list out some questions that uh, I would want to add to uh, to the list here. First of all, what is the whole business with Joseph acting like a stranger to his brothers? You know, as as you pointed out, and what's what's with all the drama here, and why did he go through that whole thing? Uh, why did he treat them harshly? You know, why not be nice to them? Uh, in verse nine, it tells us that Joseph recalled the dreams he had about them, and you'll notice that's just kind of stuck right in the middle of the story. You know, they're having this conversation. He behaves harshly to them. They're, they replied from the land of Canaan to buy food. And then right in the middle, uh, it says uh, he recognized them. But they did not recognize him. Okay, we talked about that. Then it says, he, in verse 9, he remembered what he had dreamed about them. And then it goes back, right back to the story. You are spies, he said to them. It's like, what is that verse doing right in there? And what, what, what do we learn from that? Why in the world did he accuse his brothers of being spies altogether? I mean, he, he knew they weren't. Um, and why is he so concerned about wanting them to bring Benjamin? You know, that seems to be the big focus here of, of getting Benjamin uh, out into the picture. Then you'll notice that he says that he'll send one back and he locks them all up, and as you pointed out, for three days. Then he comes out, and he seems to change his mind. And he says, okay, you can all go back, but I'm going to keep one of you here. What's with the change in mind there? What's up with that? Why does he say, I fear God, or I fear the God? I mean, that seems like an odd thing to, uh, to put in there. And then, what is the bit with the money in the sack? Why did he put the money uh, in the top of their sacks? And why did the brothers then say, what is this that God has done to us? And then, let's see, a couple more. Why does Joseph say, do this and live? Because he hasn't threatened to kill them. So why is he making that statement? And when the brothers get back to talk to Jacob about it, what's odd about the story that they tell to Jacob? Okay, so those are the questions that we'd like to tackle. Uh, it's very easy, and I did this for years, to gloss right over all these fairly strange events, and just say, oh, yeah, that's the story, without stopping to ask uh, those kinds of questions. And, and then you're asking, what was question four? Let me just back up on the slides here. That's our first screen of questions. Am I getting to the answer to your question? Okay, so we'll just hold this and leave this up here for a moment. It's very easy to gloss right over this stuff and just assume, oh, yeah, that's the story, without stopping to say, gee, there's a lot of stuff in here that's really funny that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
And yet a deeper reading into this and consideration of the story reveals an incredibly amazing brilliance on the part of Joseph. And I would also suggest to you that the, what we're going to discover in the story is an illustration of why having a teacher is so important, um, a teacher like a Rabbi Chait or a Rabbi Mann, because a good teacher can open up new ideas and whole new vistas of knowledge and understanding. So let's start at the very beginning. Clearly Joseph is up to something here. I mean, this is a brilliant guy on a very high spiritual level. He didn't just decide to conceal himself from his brothers and accuse them of being spies on a whim. He had to have some kind of a plan and a reason for doing this. And I'll suggest to you that it's this. Joseph recalled his dream and realized what he needed to do. He was one of the two children of Joseph and Rachel. Remember how much uh, Joseph loved, uh, sorry, uh, two children of Jacob and uh, uh, Rachel. He, you remember how much Jacob loved Rachel. And so Joseph and Benjamin were Jacob's favorite children. Now, the other brothers, you know, certainly figured this out. I mean, what child doesn't know if his parents favor one or more of his siblings? And Joseph realized that he was put in this position to help effect repentance on the part of his brothers because of what they'd done to him earlier and on the part of his father who had apparently failed to see the effect of his favoritism actions toward Joseph. This was not done out of any kind of vengeance or sense of revenge on his part, but was done in order to help his family. And in this case, because he had the dreams, it's my understanding uh, that, that that gave him uh, an understanding that that was what he was supposed to do. Generally speaking, uh, based on another story in the uh, Tanakh, we are not allowed to um, basically put pressure on someone uh, in order to um, try to get them uh, to repent uh, or to uh, you know do something along that line. But in this case, uh, my understanding is that uh, his interpretation of those dreams uh, was uh, God's way of uh, showing him that that was what he was supposed to do. Now, true repentance occurs if someone faces the same situation and chooses not to repeat the previous sin he committed when he was in that situation before. And in this case, the brothers had perceived Joseph to be a threat and had decided to get rid of him. Remember they threw him in the pit, and took away his coat, and all that stuff. So the question was, would they do it again if they were put in a similar position? So Joseph, in his great wisdom, works out a plan to set up a situation where the brothers face a similar situation with regard to Jacob's other favorite son, Benjamin. So first... He acts like a stranger toward them and treats them harshly so that they get a sense they're dealing with a very powerful ruler. And he immediately puts them on the defensive by accusing them of being spies. And in the course of that interrogation process, he learns from them that they have this younger brother, Benjamin. So now he has the beginning of the setup. 
He convinces them that he thinks they're spies and tells them the only way they can prove themselves is to bring their younger brother Benjamin. Now, he then tells them that one of them can go back and the others should remain in prison uh, until Benjamin comes. And he puts them all in prison for three days. Think about the psychological impact on the brothers of all being tossed in prison. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what's happening. You don't really understand why this is happening. It throws you very psychologically off balance. Then, after the three days, he seemingly changes his mind and says, okay, all of you can go except one. So why is the change in plan? Joseph is very astutely keeping the brothers off balance. He had to maintain this balance of tension because if he went too far, they'd think he was a madman and they'd never bring Benjamin. So he first puts them all in jail and leaves them for three days, okay, and gives them time to sort of ruminate about all this. And again, they have no idea if they're going to be stuck there. Maybe they're going to be there for months or years for all they know. He didn't say it's going to be three days. We can read that in the narrative, but imagine yourself going into a land where suddenly you're facing this guy and he's really you know, harsh, and he's accusing you of this and that, and now he's throwing you in jail. You know, you, you have no idea what's going to happen. So now the brothers are sort of psychologically softened up. Then Joseph comes back after three days and says, in essence, look, I'm a reasonable guy. I fear God. I'll tell you what. I got a compromise. I need to protect my country. You need to get some food. So here's a way we can both get what we want. One brother stays and the rest go home. Can you imagine now, by that time, the brothers would likely jump at the chance to do that. So in contrast to what they thought might happen, like, man, how long am I going to be in prison? Now suddenly look how reasonable what Joseph is suggesting seems. And in verse 18, when Joseph says, this do and live, he's not threatening to kill them. He's saying, look, otherwise you're going to die by this famine. So go do this and your families will be able to live. You know, I'm a reasonable guy. I just got to protect my country. Okay. And in verse 21, you know, when they're talking about we deserve to be punished because of what we did to our brother, the brothers are starting to relate this in their minds to how they treated Joseph many years before. Okay. So this is, the, the impact of this is working on them. Now comes the money part. So what is Joseph's purpose in returning the money? The money is an integral part of Joseph's plan. Because at first, the situation could have been seen as a misunderstanding about their visit and whether or not they were spies. So they could say, well, okay, he thought we were spies, but we're not really, and so on and so forth. But the money changes it. The money made them realize that God had done something. Uh, at this point, they apparently hadn't done uh, perhaps complete repentance. We're not, we're not sure. But now, now this is beginning to look like a plot. I mean, all our money's back in the bags. And maybe if you try to put yourself in their position and think about what's going through their mind. Maybe this ruler guy is looking for a scapegoat and maybe intends to pin a crime on us. I mean, sometimes rulers do that where they've got a, 
make a point to the public and they convince or they convict somebody of something in a very public way in order to frighten the people. Remember, Joseph came across very harshly to them. So this is all part of Joseph's plan. And it appears that Joseph had complete control because he's using his, uh, his servants over the loading of the animals. And he arranged for one's money to be in the sack that would be accessed along the way while the other's money was returned in sacks that would not likely be opened. You know, they, they, uh, it appears they were involved in, in packing up the, the animals. And there's a, a, a proof of this in that the brothers obviously didn't expect that everyone's money had been returned because they opened the sacks in front of Jacob. And then they saw the money. I mean, they were all, you know, apparently very surprised. Uh, if they had thought that that was the case, they probably wouldn't have opened the sacks in front of Jacob. Um, because you'll notice that they didn't tell Jacob initially about the money that was returned to the one brother. You know, if you look at how they relate the story. And... So why did Joseph work it out that the other brothers would get their money later on and with Jacob standing there? Because the return of the money was necessary in order to frighten the brothers and to frighten Jacob. Jacob had to be put in a situation where he could not minimize the dangers, where he had to see there was a real possibility that he might lose Benjamin. And that's what ended up happening, uh, as we see in... Uh, uh, that uh, way down the story, which we'll get to when Jacob says he's willing um, to lose Benjamin. So uh, let's. But before we we get too far along, um, let's go back to one more point, and it's something that I missed for years until it was pointed out to me. Um, when the brothers come back, they knew that this was a very dangerous situation. They knew that Jacob had a strong emotional attachment to Benjamin. Is there anything odd that you see in the story that they tell to Jacob when they get back? Anything unusual? The one thing that doesn't come up anywhere in the text is, where is Simeon? See, the brothers, when they come back, if you read the story very carefully, they put a spin on it. Um, nothing is said about being imprisoned. Nothing is said initially uh, about the money that was found in the sack. Um, and... Uh, in uh, in uh, 46 uh, 34, um, they uh, they talk about trading in the land. Joseph treated them much more harshly than the brothers indicate in their report to Jacob. So why didn't they tell the, the you know the straightforward truth? Apparently, the brothers reasoned that if they told Jacob the truth, he wouldn't have let Benjamin go because of his emotional attachment. So they reasoned that they had to explain the situation to Jacob in a way so that he would let Benjamin go. 
And the brothers, Joseph, Joseph, knowing his brothers, knew the brothers would put a spin on the story in such a way that Jacob would let Benjamin go without thinking there was a big risk associated with it, and thus he would never have the opportunity to do true repentance. So Joseph put the money in each sack as a precaution against this. And his planning worked. Uh, I mean, we see that Jacob did not respond to the brothers until they opened their sacks and he seized the money. And then he gives a stinging accusation to them and essentially says, I don't trust you guys. So in verse 29, um, everything there seems to be in response to the unspoken question, where is Simeon? Because they don't, as I said before, they don't mention that Simeon was locked up in jail. Uh, they said that the ruler said, leave one of your brothers here with me. That's a real different deal, you know. You stay here, then I'm going to keep you in jail. And that's all part of the spin. So Joseph anticipated that Jacob would be there when the brothers arrived and that they would have to give some kind of an answer about Simeon's absence. And Joseph knew the brothers would try to smooth all that over and he undermined that with the money in the sacks. Now, it's possible that, you know, things could have happened. I mean, Joseph didn't have perfect control. I mean, Jacob could have been sick and not with the brothers when they opened their sacks. You know, no plan works perfectly or is foolproof. But Joseph engineered this beautifully to try to get the result that he was looking for. Now, that, I think, covers most of our questions, except perhaps for one more. And that is, why didn't the brothers hate Benjamin like they hated Joseph? And the answer to that is that he didn't pose a threat to them, even though they knew he was Jacob's favorite. Joseph had related his dreams to the brothers about ruling over them, and they thus saw Joseph as a threat. Benjamin was just a favorite son, and he was the littlest one as well. So they didn't view him in the same threatening way that they viewed Joseph. Okay? Any questions up till now? Does this make sense? We're good to move on? Okay. Let's move on, and we'll see what we can cover here in the next uh, 15 or so minutes. I want to cover um, from uh, 42.37 to 43.14. Uh, and again, let me read that, uh, picking up from where we left off. Reuben tried to reason with his father. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you, he said, you can put my two sons to death. Let him, uh, let him be my responsibility, and I will bring him back to you. My son will not go with you, replied Jacob. His brother is dead, and he is all I have left. Something may happen to him along the way, and you will bring my white head down to the grave in misery. The famine became worse in the area. When they had used up all the supplies they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and get us a little food. Judah tried to reason with him. He said, the man warned us, do not appear before me unless your brother is with you. If you consent to send our brother with us, we will go and get you food. But if you will not send him, we cannot go. The man told us, do not appear before me unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you do such a terrible thing to me, telling the man that you had another brother? The brothers replied, the man kept asking about us and our family. He asked, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? 
We simply answered his questions. How are we to know that he would demand that we bring our brother there? Send the boy with me, said Judah to his father Israel. Let us set out and get going. Let's live and not die, we, you, and also our children. I myself will be responsible for him. You can demand him from my own hand. If I do not bring him back and have him stand here before you, I will have sinned for all time. But if we had not waited so long, we could have been back. We could have been there and back twice by now. Their father Israel said to them, If that's the way it must be, this is what you must do. Take some of the land's famous products in your baggage and a little balsam, a little honey, and some gum, resin, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take along twice as much money so that you will be able to return the money that was put at the tops of your packs. It might have been an oversight. And your brother, take him. Go and return to the man. May God Almighty grant that the man have pity on you and let you go along with your brother, your other brother and Benjamin. If I must lose my children, then I will lose them. Okay. So let's stop and ask the same thing again. Are there any questions that pop up in your mind as we go through that section of the story? Okay, Edna, thank you. Pamela, I noticed you're writing something, so let me uh, wait. Benjamin was all Jacob had. Um, in one sense, yes, in terms of there were only two children that he had with Rachel, and it was Joseph and Benjamin. The other brothers he had with um, Leah and uh, some of their um, uh, handmaids, but... Uh, only two children came from his marriage with Rachel. Okay, here are some questions for us to consider. First of all, what kind of an offer is Reuben really making, and why does Jacob reject him? You know, Reuben says, if I don't bring him back, you can put my two sons to death. And Jacob right away says, my son will not go with you. So what's going on there? Why, why, uh, what's Reuben doing, and why does Jacob reject that? Then Judah later makes an offer, and Jacob accepts that. So what's the difference, and why does Jacob accept one and not the other? You'll notice that Judah waits to make his offer until the food is all gone, or close to being gone. So why does Judah do that? And why does Jacob tell, why does Jacob tell them to go get food as though he had forgotten all about the condition of Benjamin going with them. Okay? Seems kind of odd. He acts like none of this had ever happened. Then you'll notice the text names all the gifts that Jacob is sending. And Jacob doesn't seem to be concerned about Simeon at all here. In verse 38, Jacob mentions Joseph is dead and Benjamin is left. Well, the brothers already know that. So why is he bringing that up? And finally, why does Jacob suddenly rebuke them for telling them they had a younger brother? Why does he bring that up now and not when they first return? Okay, and Judah goes through some of the details again. A lot of funny things that are fairly subtle here going on in the story. So let's see if we can if we can deal with those. 
So let's start with Reuben's offer. His offer was to kill his sons if he didn't bring Benjamin back. Well, what kind of an offer is that? I mean, his sons are Jacob's grandsons. What good would it do Jacob to lose his grandsons? The answer is that Reuben didn't intend this literally. It was an, impulf, an impulsive expression of his emotion. And perhaps, you know, that's similar to today's action-adventure movie heroes who in the face of insurmountable odds will resolutely shout, I'll save the world. Yeah, well, maybe. But maybe one of those 3,000 bad guys that the hero plans to single-handedly overcome is going to take him out first. See, situations like this are not the time for grandstanding. They are the time for rational thinking and well-planned strategy. Remember, as we discussed before, our emotions can cloud our view of reality. The situation that Jacob uh, faced at this point was one that required very clear thinking. And seeing the emotional impulsiveness of Reuben's offer, well, I'll go get him, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my son. Jacob recognized, no, no, that's not the guy I want to put in charge of handling this crisis. He's emotionally impulsive. He's letting him, his emotions, you know, carry him away. By contrast, Judah bided his time. He waited. He didn't make his offer to Jacob right away. He waited till the food had gotten low and Jacob was forced into action, and then he made his offer. Sometimes it's not the time to approach someone. They may not be in the right mood to receive what you're about to tell them. They may be distracted. They may not fully appreciate the situation yet. The wise person picks carefully when to go approach someone about something that they have to talk to them about to find the best time. Sometimes it's better to wait and talk to somebody when they're in a different frame of mind. And Judah realized this. <clears throat> Reuben impulsively jumped ahead, but Judah recognized, nah, now's not time to approach Dad. Got to wait. And so when he finally does, what about his offer? He says, if I, you know, if he doesn't bring Benjamin back, he will have sinned against sin for all time. What, what does that mean? Judah was essentially saying this: Look, I can't offer you anything physical here. There's nothing to offer. I know how important Benjamin is to you. I will personally take full responsibility for the situation with everything I have. If I don't bring him back, then you can essentially, I can just hold it against me for the rest of my life. I'm sort of putting my whole life on the line for this. Judah's commitment was based on justice, and his word was his guarantee. Insofar as was humanly possible, he was committed to bringing Benjamin back. And Jacob recognized that Judah's offer was rational, and he agreed to it. There was no better offer, really, to be made by anyone in that situation. Okay. Now, let's ask another question that should be looming large in front of us during all this, and that is, why isn't Jacob concerned about Simeon? After all, he's not there, and he hasn't come home, even during the whole time they're going through all the food. You know, before the second trip is made, there's no mention of Simeon. Why is that? The answer is that there was nothing to lead Jacob to believe that Simeon's life was in danger. Remember, 
the brothers had played down some of the details of their encounter with Joseph. Uh, and it seems that Jacob had no idea that Simeon was in prison. So it's not like a big deal to him. He thinks everything apparently is fine. Now, in verse 38, Jacob mentions that Joseph is dead and Benjamin is left. The brothers know this, so why does he bring it up? And I'll suggest that he brings it up because Joseph had, a, or sorry, Jacob had a special relationship with Joseph and Benjamin. They were both sons of his now deceased wife, Rachel. And again, remember how much Jacob loved Rachel. So you can imagine how special that her sons would be to him. The brothers had to have known that Joseph and Benjamin were special to Jacob. But this is the first time that Jacob is openly telling them that his relationship with Benjamin is different than his relationship with the rest of them. The repentance of the brothers is apparently still in progress here. And one aspect of this is that they have to understand that Jacob has a right to have a favorite son. And in so many words, Jacob is telling them that they have to live with that. So now let's go back to, to 43.1. When the food begins to run out, why does Jacob tell them to go back as if he doesn't realize the situation? And the answer is that the brothers never told him how serious it was. Remember, they put this spin on it. The brothers have deliberately withheld from Jacob how serious the situation was. And now is the first time that Jacob is really getting a sense of how serious this situation really is. Because again, the brothers had played it down, but now the, the whole situation begins to unfold itself. And Jacob begins to see a bigger picture of what's going on. And verse 6 in chapter 3 is a, is a turning point in this. Uh, Jacob starts to take control of the situation. And then he asks, well, why did you do such a terrible thing to me, telling the man you had another brother? So, so we could ask the question, why does he suddenly now rebuke the brothers for telling them they had a younger brother? Why not? Why didn't he do that when they first returned? And the answer is that the question isn't a rebuke. It's a question so that Jacob can fully understand the situation. He's now doing an investigation and, and kind of taking over and now trying to fully understand what's going on. The general rule is you don't give away information unless you have to. So Jacob is asking, I need to know what motivated you to give this much information to a stranger. And there are two important principles that we can learn from this. First, don't give away information to strangers, or don't tell them any more than you absolutely have to. And second, if you are caught in a situation and you have to give information, try to stay with the truth because you're in greater jeopardy with a lie. And that's exactly what the brothers did. They told the truth to Joseph about the family. Because as soon as you start telling lies, then you've got to remember the lies that you told. And if you slip up and they start interrogating you, uh, cross-interrogating you, you're going to get into trouble. So they followed through and told, you know, uh, and told, you know, real stuff about the family. So now we start to see in about verse 6 and 7 and 8 and beyond, there's a power shift taking place here. Jacob, up to this time, has been fairly passive in this drama. Now he sees that Benjamin's going to have to go to Egypt. And now he starts to take control and give very clear direction. And as part of that strategy, Jacob directs the brothers to take some of the land's products with them. Uh, and what Jacob is hoping is this whole thing is a big misunderstanding. Uh, 
So this is not like the situation with Esau where he's sending massive amounts of gifts because this would not be a good situation for a gift because it could look like he's trying to bribe the ruler, bribe Joseph in this case. This is not a bribe, okay? Uh, it's an attempt to show respect and set the proper tone. That's why he says take a bit. He uses that term in the English translation, a bit. This is about showing thoughtfulness, that the brothers are very thoughtful people and that they show honor and respect to a ruler. Every ruler is concerned about respect. And so sending a bit of this and a bit of that as a, uh, as a gesture of honor and respect, as opposed to like a big thing which would be a bribe, this is a gesture to show respect. Jacob also directs them to take twice the amount of money. Why? Many people think that a religious person is operating in the world of prayer and faith and like God's going to take care of me. Jacob was involved in prayer and preparation. What he was telling them was, anticipate the worst. Don't make assumptions. In this case, with regard to the return money, be on the defensive. I'm going to send you with twice as much. You take the initiative. Give it back immediately. Don't wait for them to come to you. So he, he essentially does all the preparation that he can to make sure the situation is going to be uh, as positive as possible. And then... In 43.14, after he's made practical preparations, he prays. Uh, and in 43.14, he says, um, May God Almighty grant that the man have pity on you and let you go along with your other brother and Benjamin. If I must lose my children, then I will lose them. And that reinforces a point that we've discussed earlier, that in the world of Torah, it's our responsibility to do everything we can to prepare for a situation in the physical world then we pray to God for help for all those things that are outside of our control. And I see our time is about up, and this is a good stopping point. Any questions about anything that we've covered? Do you, be, do you begin to see the amazing intricacies and the psychological uh, wisdom that Joseph is operating with here in order to set this situation up and the underlying uh, sort of subtle things that are going on between the brothers and their father and differences between Reuben and Jake, uh, Judah and so forth. It's an amazing story in terms of the, uh, the psychological intricacies. So, any questions before we close off for the evening? Okay, um, if you do uh, have time, before next week, if you could read from where we left off, um, let me get to right, from 43.15 uh, through to the end of the story at 45.1. Uh, that will be helpful background uh, for what we'll uh, see if we can cover off the remainder of the story and wrap up our class uh, next week. So thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your comments, and uh, everyone have a great week, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week.
Good evening, everyone. Hope you can hear me okay. Somebody let me know we got some volume.